Uh, heads up, my voice is a little sexier than normal. <laughs> Had we have been thinking, we would have just cued some Barry White music. And I would have done the whole sermon. <laughs> you know you loves you, baby. <laughs> so, yeah, that's going to happen. Um, if you're visiting, I'm, uh, I'm Darren. I'm one of the pastors here, and we're so glad that you're here. Um, we've been on this journey of this uh, contend for the faith. We've been, you know, we travel the world, and I see, like, when we go to North Africa, that what, the attack on the faith there is different than the attack on the faith in Uganda, is different than the attack on the faith in Haiti, and it's different than the attack on the faith in America. And the attack on the faith in America has been largely intellectual. And we, uh, in many cases, some of us have been asleep at the wheel. And so we're kind of waking up going, oh, we, need, we really have, these are some legitimate questions and we really should talk about some of these things. And so uh, that's what we're doing. And that today, uh, over these next few weeks, I'm just gonna, each Sunday, I'm just gonna cover like, like an objection, a question that you may not even be a skeptic, but it might be, that actually does, I do wonder about that. And so that's what, you know, today we're going to talk about the, the simple objection, which is uh, if God is good and all-powerful, then why does evil exist? And the, the idea behind that is very simple, and that is, that sounds simpler on the surface, but when you really drill down, it's like if, in fact, God was good, then he couldn't be all-powerful if evil exists because he's good, but he, he's not powerful enough to stop it. That's the conundrum. The other conundrum is, well, he could be all-powerful, but because he doesn't stop evil, that means he can't be good, right? That's a pretty formidable argument when you think about it. That's a good and legitimate question. And so we're going to go to 1 Peter, uh, and we're going to take the scenic route, and I'm going to ask you to trust me a little bit this morning. Um, if you've ever put together like an Ikea piece of furniture, <laughs> right, I would rather claw my own eyes out than do that. But if you have, you know that there are things you're doing along the way, and eventually you're like, oh, that's an actually a couch, like when it all got together. So you might feel like there's a piece here and a piece here, but my hope is by the end of the, the, this, our 30 minutes together that you'll experience, you know, a theological couch uh, when we're done. But First Peter chapter 1, um, and while you're turning there, by the way, a little greeting this morning from our little buddies, and uh, this picture came from this morning in uh, Conduit Church in Uganda. That's one of the three churches that are there right now. That's Eva and and the kids that are at school. So you, uh, you, if, you're, if you're new around here, we, uh, we give a lot of money away. <laughs> and we love it. We love it. Um, so 1 Peter chapter th- uh, 1, verse 3. And I'm going to just read 3 through 12 just for the sake of my vocal cords. Um, I feel like I could buy myself a couple extra seconds. So praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice Though now, for a little while, you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. And these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. In verse 8, 
Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted uh, the Spirit was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you, when they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. I love this part. And even the angels long to look into these things. So let's pray. Jesus, we ask you for your um, wisdom today. I'm so thankful for uh, just for your grace and for your, you chose us and that you've, uh, nothing that we have done, that you've just reached out and sought us and we're so grateful for that. And I invite you to be among us today, to speak to us, uh, through us, and change us and mold us. It's in your name that we pray, amen. So this little passage, this little vignette, I'm gonna, uh, I'm going to reverse engineer this, if you will. So we're about to throw out some of these Ikea pieces, if you will. But what I think that what's happening in this is that I see that, um, that the Lord in, in his word gives us. when you He's writing to a people that are suffering. First Peter is a book to a bunch of people who are, have already suffered, and they're about to suffer a whole bunch more. And so he's, this is what he's writing to them. And I, I see in this little vignette the, a couple of things. I think there's what we shouldn't do and then what we should do. And we're going to spend a lot of time on what we shouldn't do, and then we're going to back end it with what we should do. So if you're ready for the ride, we're going to do this starting with a little bit of a thought exercise, if you will. I want you to imagine, and some of you, if you've been to college and took philosophy class, you're going to remember this, the trolley problem in philosophy. Does anybody remember this? Okay. The trolley problem, if you don't know, is very simple. On the train track, you can see there is five men uh, tied down, and then on the, the adjoining track, there is one man tied down. And so the problem is this for you to solve. You have the ability in your power to pull the lever. If you pull the lever, it saves the five men, kills the one man. You don't pull the lever, it kills the five men and uh, saves the one man. What do you do? Pull the lever? Everybody's thinking this is a trick question. This is genuinely not a trick question. <laughs> Do you pull the lever? Pull it. Like Vegas, baby. <laughs> right? Nine out of ten people, that's what, when they've, and this, by the way, is a problem that's been studied it's at Princeton and, and Harvard, an ongoing study. So nine out of ten people pull the lever because the math makes sense. If, it, if those are the only options I have in front of me, and some of you are like, well, what if it wasn't? It's not fair. I don't do hypotheticals. Follow me. Because I'm going to take it up a notch with the problem that is still being studied. Because they're trying to figure this out at Princeton. So they've, they've changed it up a little bit. So here's the new problem. Now you've got five people on the track. But instead of you pulling a lever, you are now standing over the track with a, a dude about my size. A, a biggin, if you will. And you can save the five people by simply pushing biggin onto the tracks. And save the five people. Would you push Biggin? 
It's different, isn't it? Nine out of 10 people actually say they wouldn't push big in, but they would pull the lever. And that's what they're studying at Princeton. <laughs> because they can't figure out why the math is the same, but nine out of 10 people asked on the streets. And here's what they're studying. They're, they're strapping people into MRI machines and they're scanning their brains. And what they're finding is that when it's about the lever, that is hitting the front of your brain where the math happens, where that's why you're on time for meetings and it's what, you know, the, the logical side of you. But when it is about pushing big in, then it's about this deeper part of your brain and this deeper part lights up that says, no, 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 death is wrong, don't do that. And now this might sound absolutely elementary to you, but these neurologists and psychologists are 100% fascinated because they can't figure out why. They say that uh, with morality, the, the, the previous assumption was that morality was handed down from generation to generation. And it goes even deeper because they, they actually, uh, in a recent episode of uh, Radio Lab, does anybody listen to Radio Lab? All of my nerds unite. Uh, they revisited this. But they talk about at the end of the last episode of MASH, I'm going to ask you, if you're over 45, you know the last episode of MASH, you can barely remember it. The last episode of MASH, they were, they were hiding in, the, uh, in a house and there were Korean soldiers coming and they had to be quiet. And if, they, if any noise, they would all be killed. And the, do you remember this? Maybe you don't remember this. There's the mother holding her baby and, and she smothered her baby and saved everybody in the house but killed her baby. And when they ask that question in an MRI machine, they said that the entire brain just goes boop, 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 like it does, your brain can't even do that. But here's what the host of Radiolab, Robert Krolich, asked. He, well, first, they state, well, so basically what you're saying is that it isn't like morality handed down. You're saying that it's actually somewhere inside of us, and it's like there's a war going on inside of you. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Galatians 5, that these parts are warring inside of you. And, but Robert Krolich asks this question. He says, then, well, then what do you do if it's a tie? Is there a judge that makes the decision? And that might sound like, well, what does this have to do with why does evil exist? But what he's really saying is that is there a law that goes above the laws that could say that even in our own brain that we think this is right or wrong, that is there a law that we could, that we have to bow to? Is there a law that could, a judge, if you will, his exact words, that comes in and decides between right and wrong? Now this might all sound philosophical to you, but this is real life going on in our society. If you've read the news over the past year maybe, you've seen that Elon Musk, that Bill Gates, that Stephen B. Hawking are all concerned about one thing and it is artificial intelligence, right? Now for us, the simpletons, we think, well that's because we don't want like Will Smith and the robots coming and killing us, right? That's what we think. But that's a very caricaturized version of what they're saying. And I'm gonna give you an example of this. Automated cars, does anybody in here have an automated car by the way? Are there any in Tennessee? I don't even know. So the automated car, when you apply the trolley test to the automated car, you're sitting in the front seat of your Mercedes. You're driving down the road, reading the news, because your car is driving. There is a crowd of 10 people, 20 people, however many. Do you want the car 
to hit, then the car can't swerve to miss them. So it's either going to swerve and hit a wall and kill you or drive right into the group of people and kill them. What would you want the car to do? It's not a trick question, but wouldn't most people say, I'd want, to, I'd want it to drive into the wall? I'd do that. But would you buy that car? No. <laughs> You'd sell it, but you wouldn't buy it. And the reason that it's, what this is really troubling to us is this is like we are now programming into a car morality. And we're saying to this car, this is what is right and this is what is wrong. And do I want a software programmer in San Jose eating Doritos and drinking Dr. Pepper to make that decision? By the way, this, is, this actually uh, caused a little bit of a storm in our country not long ago because uh, one of the engineers at Mercedes was interviewed in a car and driver magazine and he was quoted as saying, what would you do? You know, how would you program that thing? And he said, well, if you're guaranteed you'd save the driver, we would, we would save the driver and drive into the crowd. Caused a, a hail storm, H-A-I-L storm, because there's kids. But you know why he said it? Nobody's going to buy the car otherwise, but philosophically all over the country. Now, the reason I'm bringing all of this up and taking the scenic route to this is because what we're really talking about is who is deciding morality, where is it coming from, and inside of us as humans, of everything that neurologists, scientists have figured out, they can't figure out where consciousness comes from. Now, there are those that say they do. In fact, one of them was in a book that was released not, re- not, not too long ago. This book was uh, this guy that he basically says, hey, from Bach to bacteria and back again, this is the evolution of consciousness. And this guy in The, the New Statesman, which is by no means a, a conservative publication, uh, says this. So this, this is guy, his entire book was to describe the evolution of how you and I are conscious. Something, by the way, you probably take for granted. If you're a kid, you're like, wow, I, just, I think therefore I am. But, but literally, this is the thing that neurologists, the step of faith they have to take is they can't go past. They can't figure out why neurons firing off make you and I who we are. They don't know. And at the end of this guy's book, or at the end of this, uh, I'll read it off here because I can't see it. This is the, uh, the end of this review of this book, um, Daniel C. Dennett's book. The upshot is, by the end of this brilliant book, the one thing that doesn't, hasn't been explained is consciousness, which is the name of the book, Explaining Consciousness. <laughs> How does first-person experience, the experience you are having now, reading these words, arise from the electrochemical interactions of neurons? No one has even the beginnings of a plausible theory, which is why the question has been called the hard problem. Dennett's story is that human consciousness arose because our brains were colonized by word memes, which is a Richard Dawkins idea. But how did that do the trick? Question mark. No explanation is forthcoming. Dennett likes to say the hard problem just doesn't exist, but ignoring it won't make it go away. 
even if, as his own book demonstrates, you can ignore it and still do a lot of deep and fascinating thinking about human beings and our place in nature. What, what I'm attempting to address is the idea that you and I have hardwired into us who we are. The, the Bible says that. And if you think that I'm believing in science, you have to acknowledge that you're, you're taking a step of faith just like I am. And I would say that the way that God designed us, and I'm going to read to you something here that a guy named Greg Boyd, he's a pastor in Minnesota, wrote that I think sums this up perfectly for us. Because could God have programmed us to not do anything wrong? Could he have programmed us in such a way that we didn't choose evil? And choose? Could he have? This is Greg's, and I'm just going to read it to you. Um, there's no slide for it. Greg says this, is it possible to force people to love? Powerful people may be able to force others to do just about anything. Through psychological or physical torture, they may succeed in forcing them to curse their own children or to deny their faith. They may even succeed in forcing others to act and say loving things to them. But no one can force another person to actually love them. But God created us Someone might respond, so he need not coerce us to love him. He could simply create us with an unquenchable desire to love him. And in this case, we would choose to love God simply by virtue of how we were created. I suggest that the supposition also conflicts with our experience. He's just saying that is, doesn't float with reality. And he says, consider this analogy. Suppose I were to invent a computer chip that could interact with a human brain in a deterministic fashion, causing the person who carries the chip to do exactly what the chip dictates without the person knowing this. Suppose further that I programmed the chip to produce the perfect wife. Can I get an amen? Careful. Careful. I can blame it on the cough medicine. You all are on your own. But listen to this. I, I insert it into my wife's brain while she was sleeping, and the next morning she would wake up as my idea of a perfect wife. She would feel, behave, and speak in a perfectly loving fashion. Owing to the sophistication of the chip, she would believe that she was voluntarily choosing to love me in this fashion, though in truth, she couldn't do otherwise. Would my wife genuinely love me? I think not, and proof of this is that I, and, and hopefully all husbands, would eventually find this love unfulfilling. I would know that my wife was not experiencing these loving feelings or engaging in this loving behavior on her own. In reality, listen to this. If you're asleep, wake up and go right back to sleep. If, in reality, I would simply be acting and speaking to myself through this sophisticated computer chip. My wife's behavior would not be chosen by her. She would not really be loving me at all. She would become the equivalent of a puppet. If I want love from her, she must personally possess the capacity to choose not to love me. He ends this, he says, if God desires a bride made up of people who genuinely love him, John 17, who do not just act lovingly towards him, he must create people who have the capacity to reject him. He must endow agents with self-determination they, not he, must determine whether or not they will love him and each other. And this, I submit, explains why God created a world in which evil was possible. If love was the goal, it couldn't be otherwise. 
God chose to create a world in which evil is possible only in the sense that he chose to create a world in which love is possible. The possibility of evil is not a second decision God makes. It is implied in the single decision to have a world in which love is possible. It is, in effect, the metaphysical price God must pay if he wants to arrive at a bride who says yes to his triune love. Yeah, but... Greg Boyd, everyone. <laughs> now, is that the reason? I'm going to tell you really straight and 100% honestly, I don't know. Someone in here right now, you're thinking, if you're smart, you're like, well, what about Isaiah 43, 7? Doesn't it say that God created evil? The King James Version does say evil, but every other translation translates it calamity because it is one or the other word, and it does talk about how there are th- storms and trials in our life, and we look at the context of that. So I would say that, you know, you got to be really careful when you're using a 2,000-year-old document with 1,600 English to try to figure out. Just be careful. But my point is, I think that that gives us as good of an option as, as it, because it actually, okay, that makes sense. We got a baby in here right now. Like, I, there's got to be a baby. We are a baby-making church. Okay, we got, oh, here we go. Got a live one. So... When you're holding a little baby in your hand, right, he or she is so beautiful, but she's so vulnerable, right? She's vulnerable to sickness. She's vulnerable to danger. She can't, you know, he can't, he can't even wipe himself, can't feed himself. And so the thing that makes the baby so beautiful, so, but we could, well, what if we lower the vulnerabilities? What if we say, well, we'll make him 20 foot tall and put him in an exoskeleton so he's no longer in danger, Right? We'll give him the ability to feed himself. We'll be able, you know, well, basically we'll take away all these things that make him vulnerable and in doing so, take away the very thing that makes him beautiful to begin with. Our vulnerability is part of our being human. And by the way, what I'm talking about today specifically, because I think sometimes we conflate these, suffering and, uh, and evil are, uh, they are not the same. Uh, an earthquake, oh, and we'll talk about that by the way, but I'm specifically talking about the problem with evil, and why a nut job in Vegas, and, and why a nut job in Antioch, Tennessee, like how does that even happen in, in our world? And if God loves us, and I believe that it is because the way that he created us, he could protect us from all these vulnerabilities and in, in, in a sense make us a robot that doesn't, you wouldn't want to be. Now that, that said, some of you in here are like, Darren, this has been a real fun little philosophical exercise but I've got cancer. Darren, I, I, I appreciate this, but like I can't, I'm, I can't even talk to my ex-husband because I'm afraid he's going to kill me. Right? There, there are real live evil things happening in our world right now, and this is cold comfort to you. And I want to suggest to you from this passage in these few minutes we have left, four things. One thing that you should not do when you're in the middle of suffering or, or suffering evil or persecution, what, like our brothers and sisters in North Africa, it's one thing you should not do and three things that I think this text says that we should do. And the first thing we should not do is abandon our faith. Because if you think about it, abandoning my faith, if I'm doing it to make me feel better, it isn't going to make me feel better. He actually talks about this a little bit when, I think it's verse seven, at the end of verse six, though for a little while you may have to suffer grief and all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, 
of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire may result in praise and glory. He's talking about your faith doesn't have to become weaker. It could actually become stronger. But let me give you a really practical example of why. If I'm losing my faith and now I'm applying to, I'm going to now go to the natural and say this is all a natural thing for me then. The law of evolution says what? The strong eat the weak. You talk about cold comfort? Because that says, I mean, frankly, we should save all of our money at Conduit and stop feeding those children in Haiti because they're weak. We should never go drill a well in Africa. They're weak. The strong eats the weak. That's what the law of evolution says. So if I'm appealing to that law, well, of course you've got cancer. That just happens. It's better because then you don't propagate sickness into the future generations. And if you think that's crazy, I agree with you. That's why in 1922, G.K. Chesterton wrote about how insane the world has become. And he wrote literally a book about eugenics and how it's terrible that we should, uh, as a society. By the way, science wasn't doing that. Science and the government wasn't doing that. Because three years later, in our backyard, the Scopes Monkey Trial unfolded. And in the Scopes Monkey Trial, there was a textbook called Civil Biology, which included, among other things, a chapter that stridently argued in favor of eugenics. Saying that, look, if you're sick or feeble-minded or whatever, you shouldn't be allowed to live because you're making the race worse. That was 1925, and that won in the Supreme Court. And I was reminded as I thought about that that it wasn't science, it wasn't the government, it was Jesus' people raising up and saying, that's crazy. And the reason we could say that is because I love the way that Martin Luther King worded it in his letter from Birmingham Jail, that famous letter. He says, how does one determine when a law is just or unjust? A just law is a man-made code that squares with the moral law, with the law of God, an unjust law is a code that is out of harmony with the moral law. To put it in the terms of St. Thomas Aquinas, an unjust law is a human law that is not rooted in eternal and natural law. What he's saying is that without a, a, natural, a, a law that's higher than our natural law, how can we know if our natural laws are just? In our, is, is Shawnee in here? In our world right now, if you haven't met Sean, what is, how old is Sean? Eight? He is 10 about years. 11 years old. Sean was born with Down syndrome, and his mama, she's been posting a video every month. It's Down Syndrome Awareness Month. And my favorite part of the video is when he looked at Sean and said, You've got Down syndrome. Is that a bad thing or is that a good thing? And what did he say? It's a good thing. And yet in Iceland, their law allows for, as does our law, by the way, to say that if your baby has that, we make the decision. And how do we know whether that law, it feels wrong, but the way we know our law is just or unjust is we go to a higher law, or to a God that says, before you were in the womb, I knew you. You're not a burden to society. You're a blessing to us. There's a higher law. And if, to strap that to any other situation that we're in, to be able to take it back to just the natural law, there is not only cold comfort, there is no comfort in that by backing away from my faith. Only when I step into my faith and say, I don't even maybe understand this right now, 
but I have a, there's a purpose and I can, it may not take away the physical pain, but I know I can walk through this with a Jesus that is in the fire, which by the way is what not to do is walk away from your faith. What to do is look back, look forward and look inward. And we're going to do those really fast because I am well aware of the time. Don't you ever wonder, is the guy know what time it is? <laughs> I do. That's why you got to be careful of skinny preachers. They'll, go, they'll preach right through lunch. Because like they, <laughs> they ain't hungry. <laughs> I've been thinking about lunch since this morning. <laughs> Look back to something. In verse <clears throat> 7, these have come to... The, proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth, right? We talked about that, of gold. When you're looking back, what I, what I was really caught up when he starts talking about the trials and the suffering, about fire and gold and refining, I was reminded of, of a little story that we've, many of us have heard of. Daniel, uh, Daniel 3, is it Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Pastor, you might know. I should know that. Back in, the, in, in, in those days, they were thrown into this fiery furnace, right? And and, and Nebuchadnezzar, King Nebi, is looking in going, hey, I thought we threw three guys in there. There's four, and the fourth one looks like the son of God. That's the 30,000-foot the, uh, the view of this. But the promise, Isaiah 43, Isaiah 53, there's promises all throughout the, the Old Testament that he wouldn't keep us from the fire, but that he would walk with us through the fire. Right, and so we see that there in, in Daniel, but that's, that I think is what he is alluding to, is this idea that that was the promise, and the fact of the matter is if we don't look back, this, when he talks about the prophets, we're looking forward, trying to figure out what did all this mean. They couldn't possibly have known what it meant that he would walk through the fire with them had they not have known about the cross. We didn't know the lengths that he would go to to walk beside us in the fire, except the cross. When Paul talks about without the cross, without the resurrection, that we are to be pitied above all. Because, we, because of that, we know. And it's for sure when you think about, you may not even agree with why, the, the idea of why maybe this happened. or You might think that's crazy to think that way. But the fact is, is that whatever you think it is, whatever the reason is you think something bad happened or that God allowed this or that, what it can't be is that he's not good because the cross proves that. Whatever else reason you can attach to it, you can't say he's not good. Because that's kind of a checkmate when God becomes man and, and walks through the suffering that we did. So when I look back to that, it bolsters me. And then I can look forward to it. I can look forward. When he talks about eternity, he, he speaks of heaven and those situations and there's a hope in me I can look back to the cross and know that Jesus is walking with me I can look forward to eternity and say that you know every other religion Buddhism even uh, Islam is all about escaping this body escaping this earth getting out of here blowing this popsicle stand I'm on out of here that's not the promise of Christianity Revelation 21 and 22 says it's about restoration a heaven and an earth. You're in a body. It's without, you know, without sickness. It's imperishable. It's literally, you get it all back. That's the promise. 
So we're getting it all back, and I can look ahead and know that, you know, Tracy, we're going to see Greg, like actually Greg, and he'll probably be just as good looking, and we'll all be just as mad that he's just, so good looking. But Greg is in heaven now, but he'll back with a real life body. Jesus' real life bodily, bodily resurrection. He was the first of many. We're getting it all back. We can look forward to the future of that. And then we can look into that last verse, verse 13. It talks about the angels looking into the gospel. If you think the gospel is so simple, understand that angels don't. It says that they long to look into that. They, in fact, the word epithumo is lust. We lust, to, we want to, we long to look into this gospel. And without us looking backward to the cross to knowing that Jesus will walk with us, walking forward to knowing that it's all gonna be restored to us, in the meantime, we look into it and know that it's gonna be okay because inside of me right now, I can look in, into the gospel of what Jesus Christ did, what he continues to do, the pain and the suffering that he took that I wouldn't have to. He let evil become, so he could destroy it without destroying me. And that's something we can celebrate. So let me pray for you. Thank you. Jesus, I'm so grateful. I'm appreciative of, um, of a group of Jesus people that make this job so easy and so worth it. And we're so grateful. And I ask, Lord, that you would bless everybody that put any work into this at all. Um, would you bless them for the, the efforts and the energy they put into it? And uh, as we go this week, Lord, I pray that those maybe that are experiencing suffering right now, like we talked about, that, that you would bolster them by looking back to the cross and looking forward to eternity and looking inward to, to you and the gospel inside. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.